Good morning. I'm Dan Kemp, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer. This morning we are continuing the sermon series focused on Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. This morning I'll be reading and Dan will be preaching from Philippians uh, verse 8, uh, excuse me, chapter 8, chapter 3, uh, verse 12 through verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians 3. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but your citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stands firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. God's word, it is forever true. It is also my privilege to offer prayer for the kingdom and for the needs of the church. If you would turn to Philippians 3, and I'm just impressed how many of you actually got up and were able to make it out with the time change. I know it was uh, hard for me this morning. I would say I'd give you gold stars, but you know I used an illustration a few weeks ago that we sh if I give it to you, it shouldn't stick to you because our righteousness isn't in what we do. Even being here at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., whichever it is, I get the times all messed up, but we're glad that you're here. Uh, let me pray for us as we get into this passage that is going to, think, be hopefully incredibly beautiful and deeply challenging. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, that you do not leave us to ourselves, but you have spoken to us, not only through the prophets and the apostles, but most beautifully through Jesus, the word that became flesh. I ask that you would allow your word to change us, to mold us, to shape us, to make us more like Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Did you hear it? Did you hear Paul's deep, affection for this church. I want you to listen again for the six terms he uses to share how he feels about this church. This is chapter 4, verse 1. This is the end of a big section that actually began in chapter 1, verse 27, and is ending here. Therefore, my brothers, okay, that means brothers and sisters, whom I love, who I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. 
Sandwiched in there is a command. Who Paul could have used his authority as the apostle. I, the apostle Paul, tell you what you need to do. Instead he said, beloved church. These people he's had a partnership with. These people who he has found delight in because of the progress of the gospel in their life that have brought him profound joy. Not only how they have followed Jesus, but how they have served him. He is overwhelmed with affection and care for them. And to be honest, I think his strong affection for them, if we sit in these words, might be a bit of a stinging rebuke for us. Do you have that affection for the people of God? That you would call them your beloved, your joy, your crown, your brothers, your sisters. The Philippians weren't a perfect church. They weren't perfect people. In fact, this letter is written because they were struggling and they had problems and there was division and discord and strife. How do Paul's words compare to your affections for Jesus' beloved church? This pastor's comments about friendship, I think, are worth listening to. He says, this is going to sound harsh, but I think many Christians quit on their friends. We promise to persevere through difficulty, but when facing discouraging, hopeful, hurtful moments, we tell ourselves the relationship's over, or is never what we thought it was in the first place. But you read the story of God's love and redemption, and you can't help but be deeply impressed and deeply thankful for God's patient perseverance that he never gives up. He doesn't quit until everything that is broken has been restored, that he makes all things new, as we just sang. No, eternity teaches that love doesn't quit. He then goes on to say, be honest. You're tempted to quit on your friends because you don't like to suffer. Now, don't misunderstand me. We need to be, being willing to suffer doesn't mean letting an abusive or selfish person make unreasonable demands. And even if we speak honestly to one another about where we've been hurt or where we need to grow, we don't withhold our love because eternity teaches us that love is willing to suffer. He goes on to write, forgiveness is one of the principal character qualities of true love. Real love doesn't merely love when the other party is deserving. Real love continues to love when they have no desire or ability to reciprocate. A you earn it or you get it. You earn it and you get it. Economy of love will kill any friendship. Eternity teaches us that true love always forgives. And without the hope of eternity and God's forgiveness for us, we would be unable to forgive. Now Paul's love for his partners, his brothers, his sisters, his joy, his crown is rooted in his affection that he has experienced from Jesus. If you remember, if you were with us, and if not, I'll, I'll just refresh you. When he opened this letter, he talked about how he has been loved by Jesus and therefore he has this profound love for the church, for the people of God the brothers and sisters of Christ. And so it's within the context of that abounding, abiding, deep love that he is writing this letter of concern and that he gives them this command. Do you see it there in verse 1? Stand firm thus in the Lord. Now you might remember that if you were with us a few weeks ago. Because it started off that long section. Look back, if you would, with me at chapter 1, verse 27. 
This is starting the main heart of the book of Philippians from 127 to 41. And one of the ways you know that, Paul gives us a literary clue. There's bookends. He uses the same command. Stand firm. Stand firm. And sometimes called a top and a tail. And in between there, he has a lot of these repeated themes. So this is what he says. Let your manner of life, and the word there actually, if, you're, if you recall, he's saying as citizens, he used the word that was related to being citizens, would, which would make them think of their privileges of citizenship with Rome. As citizens, let your life be worthy of the gospel. What he's saying is let your life reflect the beauty of the gospel of what Jesus has done for you because you are these citizens of heaven that we heard today. So whether I come and see you or if you're absent, that I can hear that you are standing firm. Standing firm in one mind and in one spirit. Serving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then we went on and saw that mind, that one mind, that one spirit, was so beautifully laid out in chapter 2, 5-11 through 11, on the beauty of who Jesus was. The one who came from glory to death to be raised again. And that is to be our model. That is the mind we are to have so that we can stand firm. Now I'll give you a couple of word pictures that will help you, again, think of that command, stand firm. Maybe some of you have seen the movie 300. It's a story about King Leonidas and 300 of his Spartans who held off the Persians at this one pass. And they would stand and they had their shields. They would stand side by side. Their shields were an impenetrable wall. That's the image. He says, stand firm, arm in arm, side by side, an impenetrable wall against the world that is trying to undermine the gospel. But to make that command stand firm means that he knows there's a temptation to not stand firm, to turn not turn against one another, not to stand side by side. Another word picture I gave you is the great redwood trees. Uh, on my bucket list that I want to go see in person, these beautiful, glorious, gargantuan trees that have stood for just ages. And the wind and the storms don't knock them down. And yet the interesting thing is, they don't have deep roots. Their roots are really shallow in the ground, but they are so interwoven among all the trees together that they help each other stand. Their strength is as they stand together and as they are knitted together and woven together. And Paul says, I love you, church, who has been loved by Jesus. I want you to stand firm side by side for the sake and protection and beauty of the gospel. Now, we talked about this before. What that means is unity. And we're tired of hearing about unity because it feels like a unicorn. It feels like we won't be able to really experience it, be together. And yet, Jesus prayed for the unity of the church. Paul's speaking to a divided church and commanding them to unity. So how is it that we stand firm? Okay, again, we were coming, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, therefore, so Paul's built this argument, and then he says, my argument's telling you you've got to stand firm in Jesus. And I'm asking you to do that because I love you. Not because I could command you as an apostle, but because I love you as I have been loved by Jesus. So what's that argument? How do we stand firm? Well, let's jump back and quickly walk through Paul's argument beginning in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect or mature or complete, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
What's he talking about here? Well, he said, I haven't obtained this. He's referring to the section we looked at last week. I haven't obtained complete resurrection perfection yet. I haven't experienced in fullness what I have in part that Jesus is my confidence for my past, my justification. Jesus is my confidence for my present. He's my righteousness. He's my sanctification. That Jesus is my confidence for my future. He's my hope for my glorification. I I have that in part, but not in whole. I want more of that. Several times Paul has said one thing. There's one thing I want, and it's always pointing to the same thing. It's more of Jesus. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. I want to know one thing. I want to know Jesus and Him crucified. I want to share in His sufferings and in His death. I want more of Jesus. See, that is above all things. That is the one thing that Paul fixes eyes on. Now, there's a million other things in his life. And you know that. He has all sorts of commands and exhortations and and things to do. But there's one thing that is above all else and everything else comes under that. That is knowing and being known by Jesus. Having this communion and this union with Him. Okay, so... Paul's saying, I I want you to stand firm, but it has to be rooted in this one thing, your pursuit of Jesus. He says again in verse 13, brothers, he says that three times in this section, brothers, sisters, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, at the very center, what dominates his vision, his goals, his passion, is the person of Jesus. Is that true for you? Not is it co-equal with something, but is it truly your desire that it would be first? Now that, again, we're constantly struggling to keep that there, to, to not let other loves take that over. But because Paul has been taken hold of by Christ, because he is owned me and he has called me therefore i want to take hold of him i want it to become a greater truth and reality in my life and if anyone might have been able to say yeah i've arrived it would be paul but he doesn't he says i haven't arrived see he's acknowledging this fundamental truth that we need to pursue christ and that pursuit comes with humility. See, Paul's making this argument. I want you to stand firm. I want to motivate you by my love for you, which is the love of Jesus for you. And the way you're going to stand firm is by pursuing Jesus. And to have the ability to stand firm, to have unity, you have to have humility. That's been a theme throughout. You should have that mind of Christ, not putting others above yourselves, but thinking of their needs. You are to have the very mind of Jesus. Now when Paul says, I I don't consider that I've made it my own, I haven't obtained this, Paul isn't just saying, hey, I'm a sinner. I think all of us would be comfortable saying that. We're like, yeah, I know, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, but, and we kind of just slough it off. I, I think what Paul's seeing is this profound distance from where he is and where God's going to make him to be. He sees this huge gap between what already is true and what will one day be true. And he despises this gap. He wants to narrow this gap. He wants to press on. He wants to take hold. He wants to strain forward to what's going to be reality. Do you want to do that? 
so often we can become complacent and passive and comfortable with where we are in our Christian life. We've had enough, tasted just enough of Jesus, tasted just enough of his grace, happy with kind of some of the moral reformation he's made in our lives. There's no huge gross sins that others see that we might know in ourselves. No, he has a real awareness, profound sense of his lacking, his deficit, his ungodliness, how he would want to live differently. Something along the lines of what St. Augustine said, he said, my soul was a burdened, bruised, and bleeding soul. And I was tired of the man who carried it. Paul was able to say and mean it, I am the chief of sinners. And we've all been like, no, Paul, no, 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 no. Like if we're comparing, I'm worse than you. But see, Paul had this humility because his bar was not the person next to him or the person down the road. It was the glory and holiness of the infinite God-man who never sinned. That was his standard. So this idea of gospel gap, it made me think of a book uh, that I read many years ago called How People Change, and they talked about this gospel gap and said part of the problem with this gospel gap and why we often don't even see it and why we become comfortable with it is a couple things. One, we're blind, and we have a blindness to our actual identity, our identity in Christ, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute because to stand firm, we have to pursue maturity, which really means pursuing humility, which is going to be grounded on our identity. But we have this blindness to our identity, a blindness to the provision of God, and a blindness to the process of God. Okay, so we don't understand who we are in Christ. We don't understand, as Paul told us in the beginning of Philippians, I'm going to work to completion what I've started in you. Yeah, I want you to to live a life without grumbling and complaining. I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit that will give you power not only to desire to follow Jesus, but the ability to follow Jesus. So we're, we're blind to who we are in Christ oftentimes. We're, we're blind often to the provision that God gives us, His Spirit, His Word, His means of grace. And we're also blind to the process that it is a pursuit, a straining. There's great effort to follow Jesus. And so in this gap, they say, we often uh, the problem with holes is they often get filled with things. Think of the, sand, uh, the beach. When you dig a hole in the sand, what happens? More water comes in. As the water comes in, it fills the sand back in and the hole gets filled up. And he said, lots of things fill our gaps, this gospel gap. And the danger is that when that gap gets filled, we don't see a need for pursuit of Jesus because we don't see the gap. We're blind to our identity, blind to his provision, blind to the process. And so we fill it. And they, they give a list of several things, a lot of isms. And we don't have time to develop them a whole lot, but formalism, just kind of an outward sense of religiosity, but nothing really internal. Legalism, where there's a real focus on keeping the law for our sense of self-worth. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I used the illustration of how we often put stars on ourselves and others, and that's how we feel righteous. Mysticism, often that's an emphasis on our experience. So that gap, we, well, as long as I feel and have emotion and experiences, then I, I don't see the gap as great. Activism, and what they mean by that is when you believe the evil outside of you is greater than the evil inside. So you have this heartfelt pursuit of Christ is replaced by zeal for fighting the evil around you because what's out there is worse than what's in here. Or biblicism, 
we want to master the Word and the Bible and theology, but we don't let it master us. And so we become proud and arrogant. Psychologism, where we just focus on healing our emotional needs, though those need to be healed, that's not the end all. Socialism, and it doesn't mean governmental, it's talking about relationships. We let relationships kind of fill that gap. As long as I have good Christian friends and good community, then I don't need to to see and wrestle with the distance between who I am and who God wants me to be. So how do we how do we fill that gap with the right things? How do we understand it? Well, again, it goes to one of our blind spots, which is our identity. Now, Paul's saying, I want to press on. I want to take hold of Jesus. There's this call in my life. If we're mature, we should think this way. It's really interesting. Uh, one commentator said, Paul's kind of being sarcastic here. He's kind of saying, hey, you who think you're mature, you who have kind of been causing some problems, your arrogance shows you're not mature. Because if you're mature, you realize you have so far to go. And that your humility should make you say, hey, I haven't taken hold of it. Even I, the Apostle Paul, haven't taken hold of it. But I want to take hold of Jesus who's taken hold of me. Again, it's straining for, seeking to grab and and reach out towards this prize, which could be many things, but I'll give the simplest summary. I think the prize ultimately is Jesus himself. Because even if we say it's heaven and this this commendation, well done, good and faithful service, to die is game because it's more of Christ. It's less of sin. It's fullness. It's what we just sang. Behold, all things new. So our identity, look at verse 20, is this. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our identity is that we are children, citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are citizens by faith, not by performance. Remember, we've talked about a thief of the gospel and a thief of gospel joy is living by our stars and dots, our successes and failures. So he's saying there's no confidence in the flesh, it's confidence in Jesus. And my identity is in him. Not what I do, not what I don't do, but in him. And so what that means as one implication that as Christians, our greatest identity isn't as, as U.S. citizens or Chinese citizens or Korean citizens or Colombian citizens or Ghana citizens, but as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And I love how Melissa Krueger said, if we live as citizens of heaven, we'll have the priorities of our true home. We'll have God's priorities for his kingdom. Uh, Don Carson wrote this, genuine spirituality can't live long without an attitude that is homesick for heaven. If you've ever lived for any time outside of kind of where you were born, you can long for home. To hear your language, to taste your food, to smell your smells, all the things that are comfortable. We should long for and sense our disorientation, our alienation from this world and long for the things of heaven, the aroma of heaven. So our identity has to be in Christ. That's where our identity is. See, if we realize that we are in Christ, we are sinners united to Christ by faith, that is what bonds us together. That is where our unity is in the one thing that the glory of Jesus, the name of Jesus be exalted. That then is what trickles down and overshadows every other thing in us that might divide us. So if we're going to stand firm, arm in arm, together, not turning in on each other, we need to be focusing on Christ who's then going to transform us so that we can stand against the world as beautiful representations of the gospel as we become more like him. 
please don't hear me reducing anything. But when we get them in the right priority, then this transformative thing happens as our roots are intertwined. We stand firm in the name of Jesus against the world, showing the beauty of how we can love in the midst of darkness. So to stand firm, we need humility, which is the true mark of maturity. We can find humility and unity in our citizenship, our identity in Christ, our union and communion with Him. And then the way we live that out, look at verse 17. He says this again, brothers, here's the second of three times, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. Now Paul's not contradicting his humility. 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I followed Jesus. He's saying, follow my life of ongoing biblical repentance, of straining and pressing on and taking hold of that which has taken hold of me, that I would have more of Jesus, that you would have more of Jesus. So imitate me. And we know that. I mean, we see kids from the earliest age are imitating. They imitate their parents. They, they respond to their parents cooing. They pick up your Midwestern, your Southern, your Northern accent. They pick up your mannerisms, some of your tastes and distastes. And most of us have learned how to pray by learning, listening to other people pray. We've learned how to grieve by watching other people grieve. We've learned to trust as we watch other people trust. We've even learned how to die as we've watched men and women of faith die in the confidence of Christ. But Paul warns, who are you following? Some are enemies of the cross. Again, you see his profound emotion. With tears I say, some are enemies of the cross. Are we imitating people who are following Jesus, who make Jesus' life, death, and resurrection first and foremost? Because that pattern will then impart itself onto you. And Paul says, imitate me and others who are following after Jesus. He mentioned Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2. People who are willing to sacrifice and suffer and risk their lives for the name of Jesus. But most of all, he's saying, not just me, follow Jesus. You should have the mind of Jesus, the one who came from glory, who lived a sinless life, should have never died, but took our place on the cross, experienced the very wrath of God. As we said, he was our propitiation, meaning God's judgment was poured out on him. And then by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit that lives in you as a follower of Jesus, he was raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of glory. He's going to come again. He's taken hold of you. He says, take hold of me. Press after me. Pursue me. And stand firm, beloved church. Together in Christ. Friends, we need to imitate those who are following Jesus with humility. Those who are grounding themselves in their identity in Christ not those who are enemies of the cross. And we need to realize people are watching you too. You are an example as well. What would people see if they followed you for the next month? What you did on your own? How you worked? How you lived in relationship? How you interacted with other people? how you prayed or didn't pray, how you talked about Jesus or didn't talk about Jesus, what would they see? Friends, that shouldn't cause 
guilt, it might help you see that profound gap, which I hope would then stir in a desire, oh Lord, I want to press on and take hold of Jesus because he's taken hold of me. Do you see, it's never going to be about what you do or your work, but he's giving you the power of the Spirit to press on, to strain forward, to take hold of Jesus because God's at work in you. And he will complete what he started, brothers and sisters. And so my beloved, my joy, my crown, Redeemer, stand firm in Christ Jesus that the world might see the beauty of our risen Savior. Amen. Father, help us to do that which we cannot in our own strength. Because you've taken hold of us, help us to take hold of Jesus, to to narrow this gospel gap and that we would only fill it as we pursue union and communion with Christ that would transform us and change us how we live, how we love, how we witness, how we serve. But it would be for your glory. And Father, help us to be true friends, true brothers and sisters in Christ that we would hold one another up in the midst of this world. But again, for the glory and the power and the name of Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.